You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Well, how are we? Yeah, wow. I know. That, that's the benefit of working with younger people, is they always make you look way cooler than you really are. Um, I'm always grateful for that. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Uh, good, good, good. For those of you who are guests here, welcome. Uh, my name is Pastor Derek, and I am so glad that you uh, joined us here today. For those of you online, it's really good for you to see me. Um, hope you're doing well as well. This morning, I want us to talk about something very practical, and I believe very timely, uh, given our current scenario, situation. And I mean that both locally and and really kind of nationally as well. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what to do when you find yourself in a crisis. What to do when you find yourself in a crisis. Now, it is, uh, what is it? It's August of 2021. So an appropriate response to that might be, which crisis? Because there's been a lot of them. Let me give you a little bit of a timeline, just so you can remember the trauma again for a second time. Uh, Starting in January of 2020, Australia caught on fire. Um, Like all of it. Just all of it on fire. The economic, the uh, environmental fallout from that is still being felt. I read an article this week that said over a billion animals, estimated, will die as a result of that fire. Uh, really, really traumatic. In the early part of January, the World Health Organization was notified of novel coronavirus that we now know as COVID-19, which is old news, right? Delta variant, am I right? Number three, still in January, Kobe Bryant, I mean, NBA superstar, and his daughter killed in a helicopter crash. Uh, Brexit happened. Brexit happened. Now, for those of us in America, maybe not quite as big of a deal, but uh, internationally, huge deal. Now, folks, we haven't even gotten out of January yet of 2020. Uh, by, uh, what was it, March, the great toilet paper shortage of 2020 took place. It was a really horrible time. Uh, by spring break, every parent had become a teacher, and we got to learn the beauty of online something. I don't want to call it learning because I'm not sure there was much of it. Um, in, was it April, Nova Scotia had its worst mass shooting uh, in Canadian history. 22 people were killed. Uh, of course, by May, George Floyd died, sparking riots around the world. And then we wrapped up that year with the treat that was the election 2020. Very edifying for everyone. Uh, that was a joke. Uh, this year has been at least a little bit better, right? Even, uh, even though we do have some things happening, it, it's certainly been a, a far less uh, hectic year, if you will, and, and that is good. Praise God for that. But even today, at City on a Hill, we face a, a minor crisis. I wouldn't call it a major crisis, but a, a minor crisis. Uh, several people in our church, including staff members, have contracted what we believe is probably the Delta variant at this point. I guess no one really knows. Um, It started back with the high school camp, uh, summer camp. Aaron Nelson came down with it, uh, with uh, his wife, Aaron, and June Barker, who was there, and uh, a couple of other people, kids, uh, leaders had it. And then, of course, Kelsey got it from June. 
Uh, and then on Sunday, we were notified that afternoon that Laura Reeves, James' wife, tested positive. And then, uh, so she kicked him out of the house, um, uh, booted him out, and he ended up at the ranch to quarantine there, and he got sick, so he came back. He's quarantining now as well. Luckily, everyone is fine. Um, the symptoms haven't been too bad with the exception of Aaron Nelson, but, uh, and, and we think that it, it's, it's mostly been contained. I, I haven't heard or seen anything that makes me think that, that it's going to get any worse than that, at least from that, from that current outbreak. I mean, it could always happen again, I guess, but, but here's the reality. If the last 18 months have taught us anything, it's that there's plenty of crisis for everyone, right? Everyone. And it's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And so if that's the case, then we as the people of God need to know how to act when a crisis arises in our lives. Because here's the deal. Instinctually, normally our reaction in a crisis is the wrong reaction. Usually it creates more crisis for us than what was there originally. It usually involves panic and fear. It usually entails spur-of-the-moment decisions. And none of that is good for anyone. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to walk through Isaiah chapter 7 and ask that question, what do we do in a crisis? That's what I've titled the message, what to do in a crisis. And I want us to look at how God deals with Ahaz, the king of Judah, in Isaiah 7, and try to answer that question. How should I think and how should I act when a crisis arises in my life? What do I do? What does that look like? How do I live biblically in the face of uncertainty? And that is actually how the story begins with a crisis. A crisis emerges. If you have your Bibles open to Isaiah 7, read with me. This is the first two verses. It says, Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Now pause there for a minute. What is going on here? There are a lot of names and a lot of places that probably sound very confusing and unfamiliar to you. So before we really do anything, let's talk about who is who. Isaiah chapter 7 begins early in seven, the 700s B.C. And at this point, there's already two kingdoms. Israel uh, has split into the northern kingdom of Israel, which included ten tribes, a much larger kingdom, and the southern kingdom of Judah, which was comprised in the beginning of only one tribe, Judah, later Benjamin, joins them. So they're a smaller kingdom, but there in Judah is where the house of David is located. You saw that phrase in verse 2 of Isaiah 7, the house of David. What is the house of David? The house of David is a, ref a reference to the king that comes from the Davidic line. So we're all familiar, hopefully, with King David. Yeah? King David, very important figure in the Old Testament, most important king of Israel. And the line that, that comes out of David's reign is known as the Davidic line. And God has a very special covenant with the Davidic line. He has a relationship with Davidic kings that is different than any other kings on the earth. And in that line, we find a man named Ahaz. He is, at this point, the king of Judah because the house of David is in Judah. So Judah is small, smaller kingdom, but far more important. This is incidentally where Daniel was from as well. If you remember two weeks ago, we wrapped up our series in Daniel. Daniel and his three friends were from Judah, okay? So we have Israel, larger kingdom, Judah, smaller but more important kingdom. 
Okay? Now, during this time, there is political trouble that begins to unravel. Israel, the northern kingdom, that is actually referenced in this passage as Ephraim. Ephraim is Israel. It's the same thing. They begin to be threatened by another warring nation called Assyria. Assyria. And Assyria is a much larger nation. They're a much more powerful nation. And Israel knows we have no chance of warring off Assyria. And so they have a plan. They develop a plan. They join forces with another kingdom, the kingdom of Aram, or the Arameans. This is in modern-day Syria, but they're called Aram in the Bible. So you have Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the king of Israel. They join forces together in order to fight Assyria. But here's the problem. They also want Judah to join them, to fight this fight with them. And the issue is, is that Judah doesn't want to have anything to do with that fight. They don't want to be a part of it. And so uh, both Israel and Aram begin putting pressure on Judah to join them. That's what it means when it says Ephraim, uh, that, that Aram was camping in the camp of Ephraim. It means that the Arameans had come into the northern kingdom, and that whole joint army was right there knocking on the door, starting to apply pressure to Judah. In fact, 2 Kings 16.5 tells us that Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. So they began attacking Judah, but they weren't being very successful, okay? And so this sets the stage for our passage this morning. A national crisis has emerged. War is at the front doorstep of Ahaz and Judah. And so Ahaz has some decisions to make. How am I going to handle this crisis? Now, before we talk about what Ahaz does, we need to know who he is. What kind of king is he? We don't know a lot about him from Isaiah 7, but there are other passages in the Old Testament that tell us a little bit about the kind of man Ahaz was. 2 Chronicles 28 gives us three things about him that we need to know. One, he was idolatrous. He was idolatrous. 2 Chronicles 28 too says he even made metal images for the Baals. Baal is a Canaanite god. Okay, so he is not only engaging in idolatry and false gods, but these are the enemy's gods. Canaan was always Israel's enemy. And so he's intermingling now with, with treacherous false gods. Not only that, but number two, he committed child sacrifice. He committed child sacrifice. Second Chronicles 28.3 says that he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and he burned his sons as an offering. So he burns his sons alive. This is another Canaanite practice, the worship of the false god Moloch, worshipped by the Ammonites. Although it seems like common sense not to set your children on fire... Uh, this is spelled out, actually, in the Bible. Leviticus 18.21 says, You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Moloch. Okay, so this is breaking a commandment. So he's idolatrous. He commits child sacrifice. Three, he perpetuated idolatry. Second Chronicles 24, it says, He sacrificed and made offerings on high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So it wasn't, even, it wasn't that he was just practicing idolatry. He was doing it very publicly and very openly. And historically speaking, usually as the king goes, the people go. They see what the king is doing, sort of green lights them to do what he's doing, and all of that just kind of spins out of control. So here, here's what I want you to take away. Ahaz is not a good king. He is not a good man. The Bible does not say many good things about him at all. Not a good guy. The one thing that he had going for him is that he was a Davidic king. And so what that meant was that in spite of his godlessness, God was committed to the house of David. And so he sends the prophet Isaiah 
to him to deliver some words of wisdom and encouragement in this upcoming emerging crisis. So the crisis emerges, and the next, the Lord speaks. So God comes to Isaiah, and he says to him, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take your son, both of you, go and meet Ahaz, and deliver this message for me. And essentially, when you break down what God has to say to him in this chapter, there are three things, three words that God speaks to Ahaz in this emerging crisis. The first one is a word of wisdom, a word of wisdom. Verse 4, he says, take care and be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted. Now, I want to spend a chunk of our time here this morning. This is a very practical message for Ahaz. It is very relevant for us as well. As a crisis emerges in your life, I believe that the words of wisdom that God speaks to Ahaz have profound power to affect how we move through the crisis in our lives. And it doesn't have to be a big crisis. I want to say that up front. It doesn't have to be the pandemic or financial disaster or economy or anything like that at all. It can be a personal crisis as well. It doesn't have to be something that I've already mentioned. It could be a, a relational turmoil in your life. It could be a divorce that you're going through. It could be a, a broken friendship even. It could be the sudden and unexpected loss of a loved one. There are a variety of things that the people of God in this room are experiencing right now that we would qualify as a crisis. And so whatever that crisis is, if you will listen and take notes on the word of wisdom that God gives Ahaz and follow it in your life, it's not going to, I can tell you almost certainly it's not going to eliminate the crisis, but here's what it will do. It will give you the best shot of success enduring it. And you certainly won't create more crisis in your life if you do this, which is what we often do when we just act instinctually. It really answers these questions. How do I think? How do I act? Four things that God says in this one verse. Let's break it down. First thing he says is take care. Take care. Now, not the best translation of this word. The Hebrew word means something like literally to be on guard. To be on guard. In other words, what God is saying is when a crisis emerges, you need to pay attention You need to have your eyes open. You need to have your guard up a little bit. You need to be watchful. You need to be on alert. It doesn't mean be frantic. It means be observant. Get your eyes open. Scripture talks about this in other places as well. 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that God or the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare your mind, is what Peter says. Get ready for battle. Get your mind clear. It's like if you're going into some major event, if you're in school, if it's like a final exam, or, or, or if you are at work, it's a job review, or something that you need to be your best at, you need to prepare your mind before you get into that event to have the most chance of success. That's what God is saying. Be on guard. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter 5.8. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know, over and over in the New Testament, we are told to be sober-minded. And I always like to remind you that that is not a passage that means just don't drink alcohol. It's not what that means. It means anything that clouds your judgment, anything that distracts you, anything that removes your ability to sense what is happening around you, both physically and spiritually. It doesn't always have to be physical. 
It's, it's the awareness of what is happening in your life spiritually in your vicinity. Either the work of God or the work of the adversary. Anything that pulls your attention away from that should be eliminated. The Bible says be sober-minded, right? So this is, this is so important in a crisis for you to get this. Keep your eyes open. God is saying stay alert. Watch out. Not the best time to binge Netflix like we all did with Tiger King. Am I right? I found that very ironic. Like the moment the pandemic broke out last week, we were like, Netflix. <laughs> God is saying, no, you got to keep your eyes open. You got to be watchful. Secondly, he says, be calm. Be calm. Now, literally, this Hebrew word, it means to be quiet. So let me, let me explain what this is not about. This is not about inward turmoil. Okay? This is not about fear or anxiety or any of those things. This is about outward calmness. This is what you are projecting outwardly. Now, why would this be important to remain outwardly calm? Because especially if you are a visible person or a person in leadership, your actions influence others a great deal. You have a profound effect on people around you. And some of you may be thinking, well, I'm not a leader. I'm not visible. So why should, why should I do this? Why does this matter? Because I will tell you, that you still have a profound impact on the people around you. You still will influence others in your vicinity. You want to know how I know that? Because the moment the pandemic became an issue, we ran out of toilet paper. <laughs> you know how that happened? This is how it happened. People went to the store thinking that stores may close down because we don't know. We don't know anything. Who knows? The world's shutting down. We're all going to die, right? And so we went to the store we started buying things, and we thought, ooh, I need toilet paper. I'm almost out. Someone saw that and went, ooh, I need toilet paper. I'm almost out. And then other people who were watching were like, why are all these people buying toilet paper? We need to buy toilet paper because they might run out of toilet paper. And they started calling their friends, hey, you need to get to the store right now. Toilet paper is almost gone. <laughs> and it was like, by the end of the day, we have no more toilet paper. Why? This, this literally solved nothing. There was no reason for this at all. Like, think back on this. We didn't go into a bomb shelter to avoid nuclear fallout. I went to the store later that week. Why did we? But see, here's the reality. Your actions will influence other people even when you aren't intending it. I will tell you, try, don't try this because this will probably get you arrested. Um, think about if you went to a store, a very crowded store, okay, and you're in a crowd and everyone is just sort of minding your own business and you're like, oh my gosh, look out! And you just run off. I guarantee you someone will follow you. I mean, I would follow you. Like, what are we running for? Right? I mean, now, why? Why does that happen? Because A, I wasn't being very watchful. So when that happened, it just took me by surprise. I was looking at my phone or whatever. But you have the profound ability to impact and influence other people, even when you're not trying to. So it is important when a, when a crisis emerges in your life, that you be watchful, but that you also remain outwardly calm. Don't, don't fly into a frenzy. Don't act on Even if you're feeling it inwardly, don't act on it outwardly. And some of you may take issue with that. Well, that seems very dishonest, Derek. You know, why, why are you telling me to act one way when I feel the other way? Well, let me ask you a question. Should you always act outwardly based on how you feel inwardly? I mean, certainly not. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and act angrily all the time. No, be angry and yet without sin. You control your actions. Listen, I'm, I'm not, here's what I'm not suggesting. I'm not saying you stuff your feelings either, okay? 
We are a church built on transparency, built on the message of letting go whatever is plaguing you. So I'm not saying just hold in whatever you feel and act like a, a really tough guy, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying control your actions, and then if you feel something like that, release it in a controlled group, in a controlled, safe environment. There's a critical difference between talking about your feelings to a controlled group and losing your mind publicly, all right? We want to know the difference between those. So when a crisis emerges, be on the lookout. This is the wisdom that God gives us. Be on the lookout. Remain outwardly calm. Third, he says, fear not. Now, this is where we deal with the inward stuff, how we're feeling inwardly. Why does God say not to, not to fear? Or, or better, how, how can I phrase this better? How is it that God can say this? What allows him to say this? I'm going to use a word here that um, you will probably hear me say several more times before the end of this message. It's a, a word that James and I use often to communicate something very important about the character and the nature of God, and that is this. God can tell us not to fear because God is sovereign. He's sovereign. Now, what does that mean? It means that he has not lost control. There's never a time when he looks down and he's like, oh, no. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing shocks him. Nothing gets out of his, out of his control. He is, always, he is right now reigning on his throne. He hasn't lost control over the crisis. He's still there. This is one of the most prominent phrases in all of the Bible. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Joshua 1.8, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Don't be scared and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God's presence is with his people and he is in control. So he can say to us, don't be scared. Don't have fear, lest you forget who I am and what I'm capable of. Now, if it was true for the people of the Old Testament, how much more true is it for us in the church who not only have the presence of God around us, but in us, in the indwelling Holy Spirit? Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and self-control. Romans 8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What we find out is that fear is actually incompatible with the Christian faith. I want to talk about this for a minute. This is, uh, this is really important that you get this. We get a little theological, but it, it's theological in nature, so we need to understand it help you understand fear, I think, a little bit more clearly. As a child of God, who has God as our Father, fear actually becomes incompatible with our experience as Christians. The Apostle John says it this way in 1 John 4, 18. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What he's saying is that if you fear, when, when not if, because we all fear, when you engage in fear, it is because you have forgotten your relationship with your father. If you have fear, then you are at that moment not being perfected by love. You've lost your sense of, of, of identity in Christ. Now here's what that means. When you strip this down, let me give you this truth. For a Christian, 
Fear is a theological problem. Fear is a theological problem. What it means is that when a crisis emerges, if you fly into fear over what is happening, your problem isn't your view of the crisis, your problem is your view of God. That's a hard one, but it's an important one that you have to understand. God is sovereign, so he can say to us as our father, don't be afraid. I have not, have you forgotten who I am and what I'm capable and what, I'm, what I've said? God is saying, don't fear, trust me. Number four, finally, he says, don't be faint-hearted. This is the fourth part of his word of wisdom. Don't be faint-hearted. Now, this is a, tr- a phrase that's a little trickier in the Hebrew. It's a, it's a compound phrase, and, and it means to be courageous, but it has a word that, that has something to do with becoming wise as well. So I, I like to think of this as acting courageously from a place of wisdom. Acting courageously, but from a place of wisdom. Courage is something that I think is very misunderstood in our world today, in our, in our society today. It's, it's something that is, uh, most people when they think of courage, what they're actually thinking of is stupidity. Courage is not, so let me, under, let me just unpack this for a minute. Courage has a goal, there's a purpose for it, and it is built on wisdom. It's built on assessing the, the situation and using wisdom and being brave to confront it. It doesn't mean just doing crazy things with no fear, okay? So, for example, if we were at the Fort Worth Zoo and we were by the lion's den, and I nudge you on the arm, I'm like, hey, check this out. And I hop over the fence and I sprint down into the lion's den and I touch the wall and sprint back up and run up back to the wall. And I'm like, high five, boom, courage! No, that is foolishness. That is not courage at all. That, that, is, that literally did nothing to help anyone, right? Now, to go a step further, if a child fell down into the lion's den and I hopped down there and sprinted over and picked the child up and ran back to the wall, whoosh, throw the kid up, right? Not like I throw the kid up, but let's just pretend for the sake of the argument, throw the kid back up, right? And then I climb the wall Maybe there was courage involved, because there's certainly a purpose now or a point, but I didn't use a whole heck of a lot of wisdom either, right? Wise courage would mean to either myself or if a professional is right there, obviously have them at least assist, carefully and quietly go down into the lion's den so as not to disturb, I don't know, the lion, (laughs) and to gently pick the child up and safely get back without causing any major distraction. That is courage with wisdom. That is what God is calling us to do in a crisis. To remain, so, so understand, when a crisis emerges in your life, don't be a coward. Don't shut yourself in, but don't act with foolish bravado either. That, that, those are the two extremes that we normally trend towards. Either I'm just going to close everything off and I'm just going to, uh, or... I'm going to just pretend like there's no crisis. Both of those are equally wrong. God is saying, no. When a crisis emerges, be on the lookout. Okay? Remain outwardly calm. Don't fear. Trust in who I am. And then act accordingly. Use wisdom. Be brave. Address the scenario. You know, this past week, Thursday, we had to meet the teacher for our three daughters. And uh, so we went to their elementary school. They were so excited to meet their teachers and I don't know, like, I don't know how we're raising them that makes them excited about Meet the Teacher. I was never excited about Meet the Teacher. 
it makes me feel good. I'm like, I think I'm doing something right. But I mean, I was like, oh, school. My kids are like, school. They're like so excited. And so we went to meet the teacher. We, uh, we met the teacher, saw the classrooms. Lydia is going into kindergarten. So she was kind of scoping out who she's going to terrorize first. And, um, and when we got out, we, we came out the gym, the side of the gym, and there was a Kona Ice snow cone truck there, right? Because what parent after a meet the teacher at 6.45 at night doesn't want to buy their kids snow cones? The answer is none of us do. None of us do. But we did. We did. We, they wanted them. It was last week of school. So we got snow cones. We're standing there in the parking lot. They're eating their snow cones. Lydia's just sort of minding her own business, eating this crazy mixture of stuff that she put in it. And she looks down, not even really looking down, but just sort of looking down at her snow cone, catches out of the corner of her eye, probably like somewhere around seven to ten ants that are not on her, all right, just kind of scurrying about. She's disrupting them more than they're disrupting her. And she flips out, right? Crisis immediately in Lydia Bledsoe's life. And just flew into total panic. Started running around, thought she was going to run in the street at one point screaming, total anxiety, total fear, runs over, shaking, can't hardly breathe, runs back over me. I'm trying to like stop her so she doesn't go into the parking lot. And she jumps up into my arms. I catch her snow cone, give it to Tori. She has her arms around my neck at this point, just terrified, but immediately started to calm down once she got into daddy's arms. And we checked her feet to make sure there was no ants on her. She wasn't being bitten. She was just scared. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. A crisis emerged in her life, and she wasn't being watchful. She wasn't paying attention. And so it snuck up on her. And she did not remain outwardly calm <laughs> at all. And she had loads of fear. And she made lots of bad decisions. But then something happened. The moment that she flew into her daddy's arms, she had peace. And then she was able to think a little bit more clearly. And then she was able to go, you know what? I, I want to go over there and eat my snow cone over there, not right here. That's a good choice, Lydia. We should do that. And I, and I thought about that this week. You know, this is, is this not what our Father wants us to do? This is not what God calls us to. When the crisis emerges, we have a Heavenly Father that says, come. Let me put my arms around you. I'm not, I haven't left you. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't abandoned you. You can... You need to be on alert. You need to be on the lookout, but, but remain calm outwardly. Don't give in to fear. I'm here. I'm with you. Now act accordingly. This is what he's doing with Ahaz. That's what's happening here in this passage. He's saying, hey, open your eyes. Be on guard. War is at your doorstep, but calm down. It's okay. Don't be afraid. You can trust me. I'm in control. Remember, I'm committed to the house of David. Use wisdom in this scenario and be brave. Don't be stupid. Don't shut yourself out either. Be brave with wisdom. Listen, if Christians would do this every time a crisis arose, would it not be transformative in the world that we live in? Would it not be transformative on social media? Would it not be transformative in the, the, the groups, the communities that we are involved with? It's God's wisdom being applied in the way that God intended it to be applied. He speaks, he speaks a word of wisdom to Ahaz. Secondly, he speaks a word of comfort. He says that, I know that Aram and Israel have planned evil against you, Ahaz, but then look at verse 7. He says, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Now again, why is God able to say that what they intend to do to you will not actually happen? 
Because he's sovereign. Yes, exactly. He's sovereign. He can say that. He hasn't lost control. Now get this. This is, I think, a really, I think it should be a very ministering part of this discussion. Ahaz, as we established in the beginning, is a rebellious king. He's a bad guy. He's an evil dude. And so God could have said, you're an evil king. You worship idols. You worship Canaanite idols. You've killed your sons. You, you stir up idolatry in, in my people. Good riddance. I'm going to let Israel and Aram have you. But that's not what he says. He says, they're not going to succeed, Ahaz. Now, let me give you a truth. It applied to Ahaz. It applies to us as well. It's because God is faithful to his promises even when we are not. God is faithful to his promises even when we are not. In other words, God's faithfulness to do what he has said he will do is not contingent upon my behavior or your behavior. That is a relief, amen? Because my behavior is not always good. And I'm not always going to do the right thing. And so it's comforting to know that regardless of how I act or what I do, God will be faithful to what he said he would do. This is really a word of grace because this is unearned. Ahaz doesn't deserve this. So he gives him a word of wisdom, a word of comfort, finally a word of assurance. Verse 11, it says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, what he's saying is, Ahaz, I know you're struggling to trust me here. Ask me to do anything that you can imagine as a sign of my faithfulness to you. Listen, God didn't have to do this. He didn't have to do this. This was not, he didn't have to prove himself. It's like the atheist, it's like, I'll believe in you if you turn the lights off in this room. Like, you're not that important. God doesn't, he doesn't have to prove anything to you, right? In the grand scheme of eternity, you are a speck. He's not out to prove himself to you. This is for Ahaz's benefit, not God's. He gives him a word of wisdom. This is how you're to act, when a crisis emerges. He gives him a word of comfort. This is how I'm going to act, regardless of what you do. And then he gives him a word of assurance. Let me prove it to you. Let me show you that I will do what I said I will do. And what does the king do? Number three, the king rejects. The king rejects. Look at verse 12. It says, but Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Wow, what a spiritual guy. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 6.16 here. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so at the start, it kind of seems like he's doing the right thing. But but let's ask a couple qualifying questions. If God is inviting this, is it really testing him? I mean, God is literally saying, ask anything and I'll do it. That's not testing him. And beyond that, what do we know about Ahaz once again? He's not a a righteous man. He could care less about Deuteronomy 6.16. None of this matters. So what is going on? Why is he rejecting God's help? Here's the reality. The text doesn't tell us. It could have been a number of things. But we could just as easily ask, why do we reject God's help? Why do we reject God's wisdom? Why do we reject God's comfort and assurance in our lives? We don't have prophets that come and talk to us today like Isaiah. We have the word of God. That's where we receive our words of of hope of assurance, of wisdom, of comfort, of encouragement from the scriptures. So why is it then that we make this choice to reject God when he, when he offers wisdom and help? Sometimes it's unbelief. Sometimes we say no, I think, just because we don't believe it's going to make a difference. Isaiah 7 was written almost 3,000 years ago. What is that going to do today in 2021 in the current crisis that I live in? That's, just, that's where some people are, a little bit of unbelief. 
Number two, it could be image management. It could be image management. Um, we are, as a whole, humans, way too concerned about what others think about us. Am I right? And, and here's the thing. If I take God's wisdom and I act how God asks me to act when a crisis emerges, I will face criticism for that action. Let me give you an example. If I remain calm during a crisis, people will go, what, so this isn't a big deal to you? You don't, you don't care about what's happening? You heard that before? Okay, so let's talk candidly for a minute. Again, we can do that. We're in church. We can be honest. Let's talk about COVID for a minute. Let's, let's just have this discussion. I don't say a whole lot about COVID. Uh, social media is not my favorite place to have these discussions, but um, you have to listen to me right now. I mean, I guess you could get out and leave, so... <laughs> Seems like a good place to, uh, to have a little discussion about this. This is what is happening in our world right now with regard to COVID-19. If you even hint at anything other than it is the worst possible outcome for humanity and we will all die of it in the next two months, then you are just ostracized, are you not? I'm not talking about denying it. I'm not talking about it being a hoax or anything like that. I know it's real. I had it, okay? It's obviously, I'm just talking about uh, like slightly suggesting that maybe it's been overblown a little bit, that maybe that it's been weaponized for some political, for some political goal, right? And, and, and so it's like if you even hint at that, people are like, oh, so you hate science? I'm like, no, I don't hate science. You know, my mother's dad's, grandpa's, brother's, wife's friend died from this because of people like you. I'm like, hold on. I, it's not, that's not what I'm saying. I, I, I don't think it's not serious. Again, I had a really bad case of it in November of last year. I was sick, very sick, almost hospitalized. Fever for 11 days, 104.7 degree fever. All right? It was bad. I know it's bad. I'm not saying that it's not serious. What I am saying is it can also be super mild. And that statistically, the numbers say something different than what it feels like is happening out there. And so if you even reference that, if you even mention that, suggest that, people lose their minds. I'm not trying to downplay it, but listen to me. And this is going to make some of you mad. I don't really care. It is what it is. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. You either believe that God is sovereign over this or he's not. You either believe that Christ is on his throne reigning supreme over everything that is happening, or you don't. I'm not suggesting that you minimize this. I'm suggesting that you put it in its proper biblical context. Is it a crisis? Yes, absolutely. So how do we handle it? How do, what do we do in this current crisis? You be on guard. You be aware of who is around you. If someone is sick, maybe don't spend some time with them for a couple days. If you're sick, maybe stay home for a couple days so you don't get anyone else sick. Remain calm. Don't fly into a frenzy. Stop doing that. It doesn't help anyone. No one, is, no one has helped. No one has benefited by that. You trust God. You reject fear. You trust that Christ is still on his throne. And like every other crisis in the history of humanity, we will make it through this until Christ comes back. And then that won't be a crisis. That'll be a celebration for us. And then number four, you act accordingly. You make brave but wise choices every single day. I'm not downplaying it. I'm suggesting that you put it in its proper context from a biblical perspective. But if you do that, people will think you are a fool. They will think you're a fool. They'll think you're a science denier. They'll think you're a whatever, right? 
And so if your self-image matters to you, if image management is a big deal to you, this might be something that sabotages your ability to walk in wisdom when a crisis emerges. So it could be unbelief, it could be image management, it could be control, just the, the, the need to control a situation. Uh, we don't, in general, again, like to be told what we're, what we're to do and what not to do, am I right? The law stirs up rebellion. We don't like it when someone else says, hey, you should do this or you have to do this. This is why step one of the 12 steps is what? We admitted that we were powerless and our lives had become unmanageable. This is the hardest step to take, admitting that I actually am not the captain of my own destiny, that I don't have all the answers, that I can't fix the problem that I am living with right now, and that until I let go of control, I will always be the same, and in fact, I will get worse as a result of it. This is what I think Ahaz was dealing with. He's a king. Kings don't like, in general, to be told what to do and what not to do. And so he rejects God because he has a plan of his own. He's a king, after all. i got to have a plan. What is his plan? I haven't even told you his plan. He calls a man by the name of Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, and he tells him, hey, Aram and Israel are trying to get me to join them to fight you, and they're attacking me now because I've said no. What do you say we team up and we deal with them together? And Assyria says, you bet. And they come in and they dominate Aram and Israel. And so it seems like it, it worked out, right? I mean, from, from Ahaz's perspective, he's like, I'm a genius. I'm a genius. My, my plan worked. Now, this is an important point. I want us to park here just for a second. From Ahaz's perspective... And from our perspective, when we engage in the same kind of nonsense, there are times when it seems like our plans succeed. The outcome that, that we desire happens, and we're like, yeah. And, and, and again, the threat was neutralized for him. Israel and Aram lost. This seemed like a win. This is one of the worst things that can happen for us when this happens. Because here's what, here's what it does. It reinforces the lie that I took control of the situation and I succeeded I can do this. And it makes it very difficult because when you take control of a situation, rather than trusting God and that situation works out the way you wanted it to, how easy is it going to be for you to do the same thing the next time a crisis emerges? It's going to develop a pattern of dependency upon yourself. It worked out well. Why wouldn't I? It appeared to work out well. That's what I would say to you. I promise you it did not work out well. It appeared that way. Did it actually work out for Ahaz? No, it didn't. You know what happened right after that? Assyria turned around and dominated Judah as well. So, so here, if you've been taking my Old Testament class on Wednesday nights, we talked about this on Wednesday. After all this took place, Assyria took control of Judah and entered into what's called a suzerain vassal treaty, where Ahaz was still king of Judah, but he was subject to Assyria. He couldn't make any final calls because he was still subject to that nation. And if Assyria went to war, we have to go and help them. This continued throughout the lifespan of Judah. Ahaz eventually dies. He has a son named Hezekiah, who's actually a very good king. Uh, and a succession of other kings take place. But none of them are really fully king. They are subject to Assyria until a man comes on the scene by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, leading Babylon. And Babylon takes out Assyria and then brings Judah into captivity. And that's actually where Daniel began several weeks ago when we started Daniel. You see, when I take control, it may appear to work out, but it never does. It is, it, it is a veil of success that only reveals a bigger crisis coming for me. 
because I didn't trust God. Sometimes we reject God's wisdom and help because we don't believe it'll make a difference. Sometimes it's because we're really more concerned about what people will think about us, and so we kind of image manage rather than, than walking in wisdom. Sometimes it's just I don't want to let go of the wheel. I'd rather, I'd rather do things my way. Here's what I want to convince you of. You will fall into one of these categories, right? We already all have at some point in our lives. You will, again, fall into one of these categories. We need a Savior. We need Jesus. We're not perfect. So when that happens, then what? When a crisis emerges and I don't heed God's wisdom and I make the mess even bigger, does everything just fall apart? Does God's plan just get all messed up? We'll close with this. Number four, the will of God continues. Isaiah says to Ahaz in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. God gives people, the people of Judah a sign anyways. Even though Judah refuses, or Ahaz refuses, God gives them one anyways. A virgin's going to conceive, she's going to bear a son, you're going to call him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean, by the way? God with us, not God has abandoned us. Not because of my bad behavior, God has left us. God with us. Remember that truth from earlier. God is faithful to his promises even when we are not. So it was true for Judah then. It's true for us today. He doesn't abandon Judah. They go into captivity eventually. They are disciplined for a time. But God remains with him. In other words, his will continues on. His plans are unchanged. He still carries out exactly what he desires to carry out. Why? Because he's sovereign. Because nothing thwarts him. He's not only committed to Judah, he, was, he remained committed to Ahaz. This is what's so incredible. Do you know what God used Ahaz to accomplish? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we go all the way to Matthew chapter 1. And, and what happens in Matthew chapter 1? A virgin conceives, she bears a son, and she calls him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Matthew says. And then Matthew, right after that, says, all of this took place to fulfill what Isaiah said in Isaiah 7.14. Jesus is our Emmanuel. God with us physically in the flesh. God with us spiritually by his Holy Spirit. And what's awesome is when you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. The wicked, evil, rebellious king included in the birth line of Jesus, the Lord God of the universe. How amazing is that? This is the sovereignty of God in full display. This is, let me give you one last truth about God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty means that even when you don't serve God, you still serve his will. Even when you don't serve God, you still serve his will. If God intends to use you to bring about his purpose, he will, regardless of what you decide. He will use you. So check this out. When a crisis emerges in your life, you have some choices. Okay? You can either trust in his wisdom. You can be on guard, be alert, remain calm outwardly. Reject fear, trust that God is who he says he is, and wisely be brave and act accordingly based on all of that. Or you can try to do things your own way, conjure up your own, your own answers to your own problems. That decision, if you choose to do that, will only be a problem for you. It's not a problem for God. Either way, his will continues. He doesn't really, it, it doesn't matter. Whether or not you are obedient will determine whether you walk in the blessing 
of him carrying out his purposes or whether or not you walk in opposition to him carrying out his purposes. But one way, either way, it's going to happen. One brings peace, joy, and purpose. The other brings only distress. So we have some choices. This is not timely. This is not practical and relevant for us today at City on a Hill. We have some choices to make. We're going to continue to have some. This isn't the last crisis that we'll face. And I want to submit to you that if we as a church will we'll commit to following what God says to Ahaz in Isaiah 7, it will be transformative for our community. It will be a positive witness for Jesus to a lost world. And it will only stand to impact the kingdom of God in good ways. And beyond that, we get to experience the blessing of being used by him in those moments. The question for you is, will you do it? Will you live biblically in the face of the current or next crisis that you endure? It's your choice. You get to decide. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just a, a very practical and yet uh, hopefully encouraging message from the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz and, and one that translates so well to us today. Uh, we stand humbled, God, that you are in, uh, in all ways sovereign, that, that nothing takes you by surprise. We don't always understand why you allow the things to happen that you do, but we know it's not because you don't love us, because you sent your only son, Jesus, to die for us. And so I pray, God, this morning, for those who have been maybe walking in fear, who have been walking without being on alert, who have not been calm in their decision-making, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just gently remind them, not chastise, but gently remind them of your wisdom here in the Scripture. And I pray for those this morning who do not know Jesus as your Savior for us. I pray that today would be the day your Holy Spirit knocks down those barriers in their heart and that they would be able, just like us, to receive him and call you Father as well. We love you. We thank you. We pray for uh, the healing for all those that we know that are sick, not only from COVID, but from, from all of the different ailments, both physical, spiritual, and emotional. We love you, Lord. We thank you you're not done with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, here is the tentative plan. Next week, uh, hopefully, James will be back. He is still uh, pretty fatigued, but um, that's the plan. Uh, hopefully, I will be back. I feel fine, but uh, you never know. And so uh, here's my one commitment to you. Uh, we will gather and we will worship. And uh, the Lord will be praised, regardless of what we face. Amen? Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next time. <laughs>